It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have the distinct honor and pleasure of having as our guest multi-Grammy nominee jazz violinist Regina Carter. Regina Carter's latest release is called Swing States, Harmony in the Battleground. And this was very significant and provocative and certainly very, very important right now because we've just gone through probably one of the most important elections in American history uh, with the pandemic that we've all gone through, some of the Black Lives Matter protests, politically charged times and periods of discord and a lot of other things that have been going on. And this particular release strive to illuminate the power of democracy and serve as a beacon of hope during these rather unprecedented times. Regina, in the publication that I read recently, I saw that you were quoted as saying, I can only hope and pray that come election day, people will know that voting is a right that some of us haven't always had, and that could be taken away again. So let me begin on that note by asking, now that we're past election day, did you meet your goals and expectations for this release? Let's say that I'm at the beginning. It's just voting for this election, of course, was the most important. Uh, it was so incredibly important. But the the work doesn't stop there. The work, you know, the work has been started, especially the I'm so proud of the younger generation. They have just been out there hitting the streets. And the work is really just beginning. Now we're in a place that we can roll up our sleeves and really push to get some stuff done. So, I mean, I'm thankful that people voted. And I hope the record, the recording helped with that. But we're just getting going now. Well, yes. And and I think that what this recording did was... Uh call attention to the importance of voting right now and having your voice be heard. And you took the opportunity as an artist and you had this message in your music. And, and I think that's really significant. And maybe I could be wrong on this, but would you say that uh, maybe that's even just a little bit maybe courageous to uh, do something like this, to have such a an important and impactful message in your music? That's kind of my duty or my job as a, as a, as an artist. I mean, it's, huh, that's an interesting question. Maybe it's not my, for me, it's my personal duty as an artist in my music to, to highlight issues, whether they're personal issues or, or things that involve everyone, whether, yeah, I think, I think that's the duty that I, that or the mission that I have in my music is to maybe celebrate or talk about things in my life that other people can relate to. And voting is definitely one of those, but you know, even family history. Yeah, I think at this time I, I felt like I had to use my music for, for that, for that purpose. It, I didn't feel like there was really a point otherwise. There, it was just too important of an election to use my voice through my music. That was necessary. Well, and I think that's really refreshing to hear because I, I think of late, a lot of artists have uh, incorporated more message in the music, or at least that seems to be something that's trending, uh, that may not be an appropriate word, but uh, it, it's not only uh, 
something that is trending, but it's also, as you said, it's your job. Uh, and in many ways, it's, it's kind of lost. You know, people don't think about the message that's necessarily in the music. I think, you know, there have been times I think about the 60s. I, I was born in the 60s. And, you know, I remember the, the riots in Detroit and, and just my parents always talking about the importance of, of voting and they would discuss the issues and they'd have us, you know, I'd accompany my parents when they'd go to vote. And just a lot of the music back then, and especially Motown being out of Detroit, a lot of tunes in the 60s, although they were popular tunes, they had a message, especially during the civil rights era. You think of tunes, Mavis Staples, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas dancing in the streets. So many musicians use their voice to talk about political or, or important issues and use the music for that. So I think when we have something that's so important and it's just in our face and it's not being dealt with, I think artists do feel a tendency to express their views through their music and their art. So when you started putting swing states together, what was the inspiration for it or how, how did it really kick off to where it became this release that is truly a wonderful example of who and what you are and what was important to you. I was actually working on a completely different project uh, dealing with redlining in neighborhoods across the United States. But um, I was having a conversation with a friend who was the producer of this record, Kabir Segal. And we were talking about the election, the past election, and he and we were talking about voting and he asked if I voted. And I said, of course, you know, that was like not an option in my life to not vote. And uh, I was saying how disappointed I was that so many people didn't vote, and especially in the black community. He said, well, have you ever thought about doing a record that would hopefully encourage people to vote? So that's how the whole the, the idea of the, the record came about. And we thought about maybe covering tunes from the civil rights. And we I think we covered one, which was uh, Dancing in the Streets. But then as things progressed, the thought came up to really focus on the swing states and to choose the tunes that were the state songs, if you will, of, of, of these places. And, and so uh, we had the great trumpeter arranger, John Diversa, write the arrangements for us. And he didn't really have that much time because we changed the focus of the album. So he had about two weeks to get these arrangements done. And so all of us, all the musicians, we saw the arrangements for the first time in the studio. And it was just being there playing the music and just talking about what was going on politically and how just things were so tense in, in here in this country. And then we were, we, would, we would just have these conversations. And I think John said, you know what, why don't we record some of these conversations and use them on the record? This is John Diversa, and I live in Miami, Florida. I remember the first time I went out to the Everglades. I drove out there with my family really early in the morning, just at, at sunrise, and opened the car door. I was eating an apple, and I went to go throw away the apple core, and halfway to the trash can, I looked down at my legs, and they were completely covered with mosquitoes. I said, well, John, there's your introduction to Florida. My daughter loves to go with me when I vote. 
I think her favorite part is getting that little sticker they give you, and then she can share it with her friends. Which was brilliant. First, I was a little apprehensive, thinking they might sound so much like a, like a lecture or something. I remember my parents marching and what my grandparents had to go through and my great-grandmother watching on TV, seeing them being hosed and dogs after them. And that, for me, was enough to know that I had to go and vote because they went through so much ugliness in order to allow me the privilege to vote. I usually try and get there midday. So if I go around 11, 12, or 1, it's usually pretty empty in my neighborhood so I can zoom in and out. The way that they were incorporated, it just, I, I think it gave the audience some more information as to why we chose these tunes and what the record was about. You know, I, I agree with you because when I received the recording and started listening to it, uh, especially the spoken word segments, I mean, it, it was great because it was a good backgrounder to the selection, as you said, but it also gave you a good insight as to each of you, like the comments you made and the comments that John Diversa made and so forth. It really added to the recording rather than detract, and I didn't feel like I was being lectured. Uh, I felt instead you were sharing heart, soul, and your knowledge and your beliefs. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we were, and it was it just it was a beautiful two days, you know, in the studio. It was my first time working with uh, John Batiste and Harvey Mason, so I was completely psyched. I the bass actually in the bassist as well, Alex uh, Cajarado. John Traverse and I we had never met, but we had talked on the phone because I would I had recorded on uh, a couple of projects that he was involved with in the past, the Karen Allison Suffragette record as well as Arturo O'Farrell's Fandango at the Wall project. So did all of you come together because you had shared ideals, or was it because you had all worked together as a band? No, we came together because of our shared ideals about this, about the election and just the voting process and the ugliness we saw. All of this stuff has been there. It's just that the rug has been shaken out now. And it just seems like time after time, people say, well, you need to have these conversations. We need to have these conversations. And we don't have the conversations. And a lot of times it's because, you know, the conversations are difficult. They're ugly and they're difficult. It's like going to therapy. You know, you got to get to the ugly and deal with that before you can start to heal. We all had similar ideas. In fact, when we reached out to each of the musicians and told them what the project was about, they were gung-ho to be a part of it. Yeah, so definitely. The only person I worked with before was Kabir, really. So, mm -hmm. You know what else added to the recording for me, as far as the spoken word is concerned, is that it sounded genuine. It didn't sound like someone was reading off a sheet of paper or an index card. It, it sounded like it was really coming from the heart and yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were like I said. We were having just in the, in between tunes, we'd have a break or having lunch, and we'd just be having all these different conversations. And so, then when Kabir said that would be great to include them maybe on the recording, so we would he would just ask, "Tell me something about your state. You know, your memories. This, that. What do you think about what's going on in the country? The divisiveness we have now." 
It's not about the red states or the blue states. It's about the swing states. And actually, we have 50 swing states in a few territories. I'm proud to be from Louisiana. Who that? Music brings us together because it's a force that can speak the universal language of love, truth, and the depth of humanity is found in that. That's just an honest, he just asked and we just have to talk and that's how those came about. So now it wasn't scripted. It was just really something at the last minute that was thought about. And it was truly genuine, uh, in my opinion, and, and I loved Thank it. You. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the songs, but I, I will share with you that my favorite was Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay. uh, and, and I love it. I used to live in Philadelphia. Uh, and I, I understand the importance of Pennsylvania as, as a swing state and, and what it means. But what I found, I've played that song twice on my jazz program recently, only because I thought, well, you know, it not only sums it all up, but this was truly one of the most significant and the turnaround state uh, in this particular election so did you have a sense of prophecy when you decided to incorporate this or was it uh, something else? No, no, we just, you know, because there were states that were left out, of course. I don't, we just, I don't know. No, we just, yeah, we just picked, I guess so, knowing that it was, well, you know, Michigan, Philadelphia, that we knew that some of them were really important. But this is just the list of states and state tunes that we came up with. So, so yeah, in a, in a way, yeah, we knew that, that Pennsylvania was, was important. So I guess that's what, maybe why we chose that state, that song. There were others that could have been included. So when you were putting together the, the states and the songs themselves, did you try to choose a song that would best exemplify that particular state, or, or were there other factors involved? Well, you know, for some of the states, it might not have been their state song, but a song that was popular, that people would associate with the state, like Michigan, for instance. When I looked up the state song from Michigan, I heard a, it was Oh Christmas Tree or Old Tannenbaum, that melody. And I thought, well, if we record that, they're going to think, why, why is she recording a Christmas song on this record? So some of the songs were, uh, they had other relevance to the specific state. And so that's why, like for Michigan, we chose Dancing in the Streets.
which was a great tune. Totally representative of Detroit uh, and that particular area, as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, it's, it's important. Look, because look what happened after the election. There truly was dancing in the streets. Oh, yeah. For, for two days. <laughs> Just hearing my, I had friends calling me or sending me a text with video they had taken of, of, of their areas of people and seeing it on TV. And Well, you know, the, the music not only had message, but it had entertainment and emotion. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. Uh, the, some of the tunes that you chose uh, were, were quite amazing, like the Wisconsin to do on Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about a football game. Apologies to uh, to you and Wisconsin. Oh. Sorry, I don't sing. Uh, it, it was very uh, uplifting and, and and kind of fun. Well, thank you. And yeah, that was the point. We didn't want a dark or somber record. You know, we wanted to to try and also uplift people. We we needed that just because the country was so dark. We wanted to offer some light. And so, see, Regina, what's happened is because of swing states, uh, you wanted people to go out and vote and. More people voted for this election or in this election than in any other election before. So you see what you caused? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness for jazz. <laughs> You've done your work well. You can uh, go and party now. <laughs> uh, yeah, we still we, we have to push up our sleeves now and keep going. <laughs> we can't get comfortable. So do you think now that there has been message in music about things like voting and civil rights and the environment and so many other issues of the day. What about now? Do you think it's the role of music possibly uh, and artists involved in it to continue that to the healing process and maybe bring us all even closer together through music? Because look what happened during the voting where people were in lines for three, four, five, six, seven hours, and they brought in music, and people started dancing, or they were singing, or they felt comfortable, and it worked. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that we will, artists will continue and have to continue, because as I said, this is people voted, but now we have to keep going. We have to keep that momentum going. We can't get comfortable and I think, you know, there are so many issues to deal with and that, you know, artists will focus on different issues through their art. It's, it's always interesting to me, I think, through our music and the performances and hopefully we can perform again live, you know, at some point soon. But through that, you can, artists, we can present issues that are sometimes difficult to talk about and painful. But when it's presented through the use of music, or art, it's some kind of way you can give the message 
without making them feel defensive. They can hear it that way. They can hear with them. It's, 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 I, I don't know. I think it's really important that music serves as that platform, music and art, to help bring people together, to have conversations and to understand. Well, and you as a well-known musician and others uh, in the business, you have that platform and a stage and a spotlight. So why not use it to the advantage of all of us? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's important. And, and, and well, for me, it is. Well, and it's something I think a lot of us have been clamoring for as someone to give us either focus or attention or maybe hope, optimism, and a little bit of joy right now. Right. And even with issues that are really hard to talk about or really dark or ugly, you know, when artists present it, it's 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 presenting it in a way audiences can see or understand how someone else is feeling or how it affects and it affects everyone. It's a way to it's not banging people over the heads with a message. So, and you do that really well, uh, Regina. I am um, just in awe of uh, not only your courage, uh, but your talent and uh, the way that you uh, deliver to us the music and the message. And thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, it was a, a labor of love and uh, all of the musicians on the, on the album. It was amazing to work with them and, and to come together and to record a record of hope. Indeed. Let me talk a little bit about uh, the labor of love that uh, you have uh, put into this. Uh, And it it all started a long time ago in uh, Detroit. I believe that's uh, where you're originally from. Is it really true that the age of two, you started playing the piano? Two? Yes. Yes. I know. Crazy, isn't it? I, my, my mom always told me and my brother's confirmed that I just walked up one day and started playing a piece that my uh, one brother Reggie was practicing and the teacher was there to give them their lessons and she asked who gave, who taught me and they were just as shocked as she was because they didn't I guess I'd never gone up to the piano before so so yeah <laughs> well that, that's amazing so was there music in the household or family that spurred you on or inspired you well, yes, there was music always in, in, in my house. Um, my mom was a kindergarten teacher and her mother, my grandmother, graduated from Morris Brown University in 1915 with a degree in piano pedagogy, which was incredible at the time for a woman and a, and a black woman at that to graduate, to attend a, a university. So my grandmother played, my mom didn't have the musical gene, but she used music, I would show her few chords uh she would use music in her kindergarten class to teach history and other subjects and so she felt it was important for my two older brothers and myself to be exposed to music and art and have the opportunity to 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 play music so where did the violin come into play well my brother's piano teacher she tested me and saw that i had a gift to be able to hear and play back what i heard so she sent me to a woman in Detroit named Anna Love who taught me piano lessons. But when I would go into my lesson, I would always come in with songs I had written, I had composed at four, at two, whatever. And the teacher, Mrs. Love, didn't want me to, she didn't want to stifle my creativity by trying to force me to learn how to read music. 
So she told my mother to stop the lessons and just let me to continue to create at home. So when I was four, the Suzuki method was being offered for the first time in Detroit for strings. And uh, Mrs. Love called my mom and said she thought this would be the perfect program for me. My mom took me in. I don't know who handed me the violin, but I fell in love with it. And the rest was history. And indeed, it's been beautiful history, too, because uh, your music is astonishing and uh, really uh, quite a joy to experience. Thank you. When you went off to school, uh, you, you did a lot of classical leaning sort of uh, studies, etc. Through high school, you got involved with symphony-type music and uh, classical ensembles and so forth. And then you went off to the New England Conservatory to study classical violin. But then something came knocking on the door called jazz. How, how did that come about while you were at uh, New England Conservatory? Actually, it happened before that. But I'd like to say, I always like to say European classical music because every culture has its own classical music. So that's just my 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 thing but yeah i i was i went to public schools in detroit so we i i grew up having music in the schools which was which was great and i when i went to the detroit community music school that's where i studied the suzuki method and um we'd be there all day on saturdays and then when i was older the detroit symphony orchestra had a, a youth orchestra that i joined and i played in that for several years in high school i was in orchestra and we had our regular classes but beyond that i was in orchestra choir madrigals i had uh, had to take a second stringed instrument i had to take a wind instrument uh, i was in harp and vocal so i was in school pretty much from like seven to four and then when we would have concerts we might even go in in the morning 5 30 and not get out until eight at night and still had to get our homework done it was a huge school four thousand students my graduating class was just under a thousand i think and uh, so many great high-level musicians at the school that like spurred us all on. You know, you just hear these great music, great other uh, singers and, and instrumentalists, and it really just inspired us all to work hard. And my first year, I met a friend in, well, I met, she was an orchestra, she played bass, but she's a, a wonderful jazz vocalist, Carla Cook. And we sat next to each other in Spanish class, and she was the one that actually introduced me to jazz by way of three jazz violinists, Jean-Luc Ponty, Stefan Popelli, and Noel Pointer. So that's where I hadn't heard jazz. I mean, I heard records in my house, but it, I, I hadn't really heard jazz like that and not jazz violin. I thought I was completely, that turned my world upside down. So when I went to college, I wanted to go as a jazz major and my mother said no, because she said, you're gonna get in someone's symphony orchestra and have some you know, health insurance and some pension, you know, that whole thing. And uh, so I went to NEC, New England Conservatory. And then in my second year there, I switched my degree to, uh, to the jazz program, still studying with my European classical teacher. And then I just, I had a difficult time dealing, living in Boston. New England at the time only had one dorm. You were just out in the city. It was a different kind of place for me. It was the first time I had experienced uh, racism 
and just it was it was too much for me. I needed a campus, so I transferred to Opaline University in um, Rochester, Michigan. And when I went there, the jazz director of the jazz big band, I told him I wanted to play jazz, and he didn't blink an eye. He just said, "Here, I'm going to put you in the saxophone section. You're going to read the alto charts." And then a lot of the jazz musicians from Detroit, people fame, you know, people like Marcus Trumpeter, Marcus Belgrave, w- Wendell Harrison, clarinetist Donald Walden, so many best Bonnier, so many musicians from the Detroit area who were working professional high-level musicians would come up to Oakland and give us workshops and master classes. A lot of the alum that would come back and help the band out and play. So it was I I, I feel like you know growing up in Detroit. In that area, I, I had I had a rich upbringing. Violin really plays, I think, a wonderful role in jazz music, and obviously, I'm I'm sure you do as well. But <laughs> did did you ever envision that it would one day lead to your being the band leader, or a recording evolving strictly around the violin? Actually, yes. Uh, when I was <laughs> When I was younger, I and my mom would take me to hear the Detroit Symphony at a um, at a hall that's no longer exists. It was called Ford Auditorium in Detroit, and we would get free tickets. The music school where I studied would give us free tickets, and I'd, we'd sit up in the balcony and I, you know, see the symphony or the ballet. And whenever they had a soloist, I would imagine that I was the soloist. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to be in the orchestra. I wanted dream big. And so that I did. And I just, I love being on stage as a youngster. I took dance, tap and ballet as well. And one of my, my brother right over me, uh, we would give shows at the house and my mom would bring home a projector and a spotlight during the summer. And he would, he would run the, he would be in charge of the record player and the lights and this and we and he's a stagehand now as head stagehand here in New York. So it's kind of funny. We both were play acting and doing what we wanted to do and and so yeah i i always wanted to be i thought if i if i'm playing with an orchestra i want to be the soloist with the orchestra and then as a jazz musician playing in school and i played with several professional bands after graduating from school but i knew that i at at a certain point i knew i wanted to have my own band and, and especially, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get a lot of work when I moved to New York. I mean, it took a minute, but I was able to play in several different types of ensembles and different genres of the music. But I didn't want to have to depend on someone else to hire me. I wanted to be able to put a band together myself and work and play the music I wanted to play. So I kind of, yeah, I always kind of envisioned myself as a band leader and as a, a soloist with the orchestra. You've done quite a bit through your career. You, you've had, I, was it, I believe, 10 albums to your credit as the leader, but you, you've uh, recorded with so many other artists uh, through uh, your rich history. Well, you've done tributes also through your music, uh, two of which were to your mother. One was Something for Grace, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that uh, was a beautiful album. But then the, the other one you did was I'll Be Seeing You. I'm sure you had that type of connection with your mother. She must have played a rather significant role in your life. She did. She did. I mean, she, for all of us, she grew up in Detroit. Uh, She was a native of Detroiter uh, and she grew up in a time she was extremely poor. 
So she worked really hard and said that she wanted us to have everything she couldn't have, uh, you know, my brothers and I and more. And so, you know, we went through our, our times as a teenager. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't wish myself on anyone. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> she used to always say, if you have kids one day, I hope you have one just like you, which is why I don't have kids. <laughs> so <laughs> I felt so bad, you know, just, but, you know, after I came out of that craziness, we became, we were really, really close. And she, although she was nervous about my, my career move, you know, playing jazz, she supported me. She supported me and she really got a chance. I was so fortunate that she got a chance to see see some of my success. Yeah, she was really, she was really, we were really close. And so, and that record came out of uh, when she passed away and I, and I was, I was home at the hospital just being there with her and I was supposed to play a festival somewhere in another country. And I had everything set, people to take care of her while I was gone. Then the doctor came in and said, you, she's not going to be here when you come back. And hmm. so I couldn't leave. And uh, we called the festival and they sued me for not coming. And so I was so bitter and angry after that, that I just didn't want to play music anymore. But my dear friend, John Clayton said, if you don't play, then they won, they've won, you know? So, which encouraged me. And I, I wanted to pick tunes that either I knew were of her generation, which she would have heard going out and hearing, uh, hearing live music in Detroit in, in her youth and tunes that described our, our relationship. It's reflected in your music and uh, well done. Thank you. Thank you. We have only a little time left. Let me, let me ask you, now that you've contributed so much to the musical lives of all of us, uh, and we're grateful for that, what's your sort of focus or direction for the future? You know, that's a really interesting question, considering that, you know, we haven't really been able to work now because of the pandemic, and who knows when that's going to, when we'll be able to do that again, at least play live. I still have plans to go back and record the record about cities across the U.S. where uh, redlining took place and neighborhoods were destroyed because of urban renewal and to include um, interviews of people that lived through that that period as well. But it's it's just trying to figure out what how how our world is going to how we're going to go forward in this new world and trying to yeah trying to educate myself and catch up, catch up to the rest of the world, especially when it comes to technology. But it's, you know, it's the pandemic has given my husband and I, my husband's a drummer, Alvester Garnett has given us a great, a great opportunity <laughs> to uh, work together as, you know, and who thinks drum and violin. And so we've had to be really creative and come up with stuff and it's been fun. And it's forced us to because usually we're either ships passing in the night or on the road so much so with this time we'll we'll get together downstairs and just play and things come out of that and it's 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 been fun it's been really rewarding so no release on the horizon uh, that will show the duo of a drummer and a violinist well you never know what might come we we're, we're recording stuff and putting it away so at some point yeah Come on, Regina. I'm looking for an exclusive here. Let me be the first to break the news. Yes. So I will let you know. <laughs> Drummers and violinists will celebrate worldwide. Yes. <laughs> Sticks and strings. <laughs> oh, I like that. Sticks and strings. 
Well, I can't string you along any longer in this. (laughs) Aren't you tired of those uh, chestnut jokes? Or or there's got to be so many string jokes and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. But you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase maybe one of them and say, because I think, Regina Carter, it applies to you. I've got the world on a string. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. I thank you so much for taking some time to share some of your stories, your beliefs, uh, and your commitment to this music that we all know and love called jazz. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And thanks for your support. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with jazz violinist Regina Carter. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Please join us next week for a conversation with pianist, composer, arranger, and co-founder of Chesky Records, David Chesky. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.